0: Good morning, how's everyone doing? Um, you know, a few weeks ago, I was, um, I just got back, uh, we got back right before uh, church on Sunday. We were out with my oldest daughter as she graduated from college. Yes. Yes. So um, I just want to take a moment and brag about my daughter. Um, so it was really fun to walk, uh, to go through that. Um, experience. She graduated from a small college in Nashville, which we never saw coming, Lipscomb University. And so when your daughter's in high school and she comes to you and she says, dad, I want to be a theater major. And you go, wow. And my daughter is self-aware enough that in our family, she goes, dad, I know that I'm probably never going to get a job in this line of work. You tell her, you know, you know engineering is a really good career she goes have you seen my math grades so that doesn't happen so she she applies to all of these different colleges and she gets into one in downtown new york so let me just really quick not just a theater major a musical theater major right a lot of companies hiring people that are you know sopranos lately right that you know that she can hit those notes um, one of the schools she gets into, conservatory, it's beautiful, we love it, and it's, uh, there's just no way we can afford it. And I, say to her, I look at her and I go, look, the worst thing I could do as a dad is tell you to go take out <laughs> $200,000 in loans as a theater major, right? You'll be, you'll be 40 still paying those, you know, you know, those, those off. So she goes to another university in Pennsylvania, which has a wonderful program. And, um, and when she gets there, um, she has a terrible first week. We leave, and we get a call back, and she is in tears. It is not working, and we're like, oh, here it is. She's homesick. It's hard to go from California to the East Coast. But she's not just homesick. We keep getting calls every day that dad, something is wrong. And she's outside one day and she says on the phone, she goes, dad, I can't think. Like I'm in class and people are talking to me and I can't process what they're saying. So we get on a plane, we fly back to Pennsylvania. We, you know, we talk to her and we go and we meet with the head of their counseling department. Everybody at this university is amazing to her. From the ministries on campus to all of her professors, it was just so sweet. And the head counselor um, looks and says, I know what's going on. He goes, You know, if this was psychological, she goes, It's easy. We could fix that. That's easy. She goes, This is physiological. She, and he goes, you, 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 when we see this happen in students, it's because they haven't eaten enough. And as he says this, we all, you know, I remember looking at my daughter, like we know exactly what happened. Now, unbeknownst to us, my daughter that summer was in a production working really hard and she, um, has an eating disorder. She's not eating enough. She's like 103 pounds right? You open the door too fast, she falls over. I mean, just she weighs nothing into her home thing. She, and, but inside, there is, all, there, is a, there is a hurricane of emotions happening within her life. Going to a school, getting good grades, pressure on her. She is coping this way. I, I asked her if I could share this with you. It's, it's, it's her story. And then, because we're great parents, right before she goes to college, we say, you need to get your wisdom teeth out, so you don't have to do it if it happens in school, because they're starting to come in. So, the only time available is the week right before she goes to school. So, the week, literally, as we're packing up and leading, she has all of her wisdom teeth out, and you know what that's like. Like, well, hopefully, some of you know what it's like, right? She, has, she doesn't need a day before, not for three days after, and she is down to just really for that week when she needs the most energy, drinking, you know, a shake or two a day. And the head counsel looks at us and says, you know, uh, the brain works, you know, basically front to back, back to front, and when it doesn't get enough, it starts paring back. She literally can't think. Her, pre, you know, her frontal lobe. It's right. It's, and he said, "The answer is, is not elegant. She just has to eat." And I'm like, "I can do that." So I go back there. Pam goes back there for the next weeks, and we're literally getting up, and we're taking her to, you know, we're we're taking her out to eat. And at the end of it, she had missed so much school in those first three weeks. They just kind of, you know, first month they just went, you know what, let's. Let's take a mulligan here. Come back next semester. And she goes, I know it's what I need to do. But she says, Dad, I, if I go home, I'm gonna sit, I'm a failure. She's depressed. She goes, I don't want to do that. All my friends are starting to live their best life, and I can't even make it. Right? I have to come home. I'm embarrassed. And so, but at a certain time, we had to call the ball. We bring her back. And I don't know if you've had that time in your life, maybe you personally or somebody in your life, where my daughter looks at me and says, Dad, is this, is this what my life is going to be? Is this like my new normal? I don't know if you've struggled with depression. Is this the way my life is always going to be? And so she came home and sat on the couch and um, fortunately, we found good counseling. She started doing work and really thinking through that, and slowly, and it was months and months, God started to restore her. Her thinking came back online. She started singing again. She she had had months where, for us, um, that didn't happen. And then she said, Dad, I think... I think I want a different major. And she then went through and said, I don't think I want to go back to the school. Not because it's a bad school, but I think I want a more focused major. So she reapplied to all of these schools, and we had to do this round robin. And you have to understand, I have probably too much information, right? That maybe maybe you had a major like this. You just didn't apply musical theater majors. Not only is there great Great opportunities in front of you. You have to go back to each college if you're lucky enough to actually get an audition. You so have to get into the college, then you've got to fly back to do a live audition in front of them. And so we start traveling all over the country again to these new schools. And God starts to rebuild part of her life. She actually gets auditions at some of the top colleges that she didn't before. She gets into some of the top programs. And it's funny because the top theater programs are schools that you've never heard of. I've never heard of. I'm like, there's a school in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City University. Didn't know it existed. Some of the top people in Broadway have come out of it. This is where Sopranos are made. You know, this is Christian Chenoweth. All these names, they've all come out of it. She gets in as a Soprano. We're like, oh my gosh. And then she visits this... Uh, school in Nashville, and it's a nothing school, and she gets accepted right away, and she goes, Dad, it's really interesting. She goes, Dad, I, I, God is doing so much in my life. Going to Emerson in Boston, which is like one of the top five programs, That, that is a theater, like all the kids would know, like all my friends would be like, you know, they were like, oh, you made it into that school, like, right, for theater. And I'm like, oh. She goes, but I feel like God is calling me to go here. And she goes, I think this is where I need to be. And so she ends up, she goes, but dad, it's a nothing theater program. Now, I won't go into any more details on it. But what's ended up happening for her and her life is that is that God shifted her as she was doing theater? There's um, Nashville is a huge arts town. There were all these other opportunities that have opened up for her. So much so that she now has she got signed by one of the largest agencies, um, uh, McCray in the south southeast, Atlanta. So HBO and you know, you know Tyler Perry. There's all this film work that goes on down there, which. She's been pivoted, and now we're looking, and I'm like, I know we've always said you're probably never going to make a living in here, but we're, you know, we're like, you actually might make a living, right? You're getting all these unbelievable opportunities, so she's, right now she's living back there. Sorry I'm going into so much detail, there's so much I'm leaving out, but if you would have told me four years ago, five years ago, right before the pandemic, our daughter, Audrey is a mess, and, I, and we remember looking at her and saying, here's what happens. You've never been through a hard time because you don't know if you'll come out on the other end, and I said, the only thing I can tell you is this, is that God loves you enough that he says, stop right here. We're not going to go any further. I don't want you to go through four years with all the things right now that you're holding emotionally and mentally. God called a timeout and said, I love you too much. And it was life-changing. When she went through college at, at, at Lipscomb, which is like the sister school of Pepperdine, it's in the same, the same family, that they, um, everything about her changed. She started a Bible study. They, the school actually made it a chapel. It's like all of a sudden, it freed her to do all these other things. Something in her life, God said, this isn't right. We need to end this, and it was a hard process, and as a parent, you're like, you have to go through it. I can be there with you, right, and some of you know that with some of your children when they go through hard things. There's part of it that God has to teach them that lesson in first person, and this is what we come to. Does God, when hard times come in our life, and I wanted to share that, that's probably the one The the one example recently in our lives where I would say, I would never want to go through that hard time again where you're looking going, I hope our daughter makes it. You, we have, you have those moments. I hope I make it. And at the end of it, when God does his work, is to say, how good is God to walk with you through that time and many times, I think the expression that, um, I think even, I don't know if you've ever used that, I would never want to go through that again, but I would never trade that. That is the thing that we needed. That's what I needed. As we talk about tough times, this morning we're going to talk about tough times connecting us to Jesus. Um, and how, in First Peter, how tough times give us a tough, resilient faith. Um... And so, um, the first thing, before we go anywhere else, let me just give us a quick review. Um, First, Peter, remember the context. Step back, think about the context of why why Peter is writing this letter, right? The first question you always ask when you come to Scripture is this, what did this mean? What did this Scripture mean, this text mean to the original hearers? So, Peter's writing to, remember, a group of these churches kind of in Turkey and the, in Asia, most of them didn't have a Jewish background. They grew up in these very, you know, quote-unquote, pagan cultures, cultures with many different belief systems, most of them, you know, polytheistic. And the believers now, they're 20, 30 years into it, and many of them are struggling. It is hard to be a Christian in these cultures. It's a different kind of hard to be a Christian within a Jewish culture, you agree with a lot of the directions morally of where things are going. You know, you get to some of these towns like Ephesus; they are worshiping different gods, and things that are right. Things that everybody's everybody is encouraged to do are directly against right what God would call us to. So these churches are struggling with hard times. This is probably happening, and this was written probably sixty-three to sixty-five, about thirty years, and. And so their people are facing hard times. Now, uh, in, in discouragement, persecution even. And we start here, First Peter, it says, First Peter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says this. Peter says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they don't need to live the rest of their early lives for for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So, Pastor Ben, as he, if you remember his his sermon last week, he kind of summed up this thought that Jesus comes to Earth and he suffers for us. He's with us. He knows what it's like to go through hard times. And this is now the and now you see him pivot. He goes, therefore, if Christ suffered everything that Pastor Ben talked about last week, have the same attitude. Because when you suffer and you go through that hard thing, when you suffer in the body, you're done with sin. I'm like, what? You're done with sin? Now, I don't think that means that I am above it all. But what, but I, I think what we're talking about here, and, and I kind of said it in one of the first sermons, I said, you know, holiness will shape, shape your tough times or tough times will shape your holiness. When we hit those hard times, it really does kind of bring out like, like what, who are we? Who, what is our relationship to God? So, how do our hard times focus our faith? Because one thing that what we see here is this: tough times develop a focused faith. So, how do hard times, fa- how do hard times help us suffering in the body get done with sin? Well, let me start from the really. Like a really basic, simple um, an analogy of this, when when I was when I was a kid growing up, right, just end of grade school, junior high, my dad got a job at Atari, right when Atari was the company to work in. It was like, it was like I was like Santa Claus. I'm like I don't need Santa Claus. My dad had the I'd go to his office. He had the live video games in his office. And worse than that, my dad could beat the daylights out of me and all my friends on all video games. It's like all of a sudden, I'm like, I have the coolest dad ever. And then, um, okay, so if you're under like 30, 35, you have no recollection of this, right? In order to play video games, you actually had to go to a place that had video games, Right, and then Atari brought out the first home units, and the home units were great, right? In fact, my dad still has the 2600 in box in our house. Yes, and one day I'm going to sell that. Um, I know it's worth it. They have the box. That's but um, so we used to go over, like you used to have to go to the arcade, put quarters in, and play the games. And the home versions were just oh, you know, they were like better than nothing, right? So we would go over to Atari, we'd go over to the Atari after school, and my dad would let us into their game room. And it's where they they had all the games that were about to come out. And, you, and, it, and it was unlimited play. And we would sit in there, but you'd have to, what you figured out is that you would have to, like, master the game. Because there would be certain things, you get to a level, and instead of putting quarters in the machine, we just keep like okay, okay, you got oh, got to do that, got. And you'd figure out how to get around whatever obstacle. And you would do all of that for one thing. So when that game finally hit the arcade, that first day you could go in there, put a quarter in and go further than anybody's going to go in the next two months. <laughs> and you could get your initials there, EJV, boom walk in. Who's the high score? That would be, oh, that would be me, right? So that was our joy. We would do all of that just to have that moment. And you're like, how is, what are we going, Eric? I'm like, I don't know. I just want to talk about video games. No. But the, the reason why I say that is the real basic part is this. There was a repetition. You knew you had to get through that. We all have, we, we've all done those things, right? Whether you're cooking, it's like, oh, I need more, more, more of this. There's a trial and error that happens. How are you done with sin? when she said that there's a process that God goes, you don't just get through it. There is a struggle that has to take place. And this was the only thing that motivated like 12-year-old Eric, right? There's only a handful of things. But so on the real basic thing, I think we all understand that process. How do you get through like and and get you know conquer things get over things sometimes it's rep- sometimes it's grit sometimes it's determination and what what peter is saying here is that when we suffer when we face hard times and god brings us through those hard times then that that sin those things that hold us back no longer hold us back and then he says wait he goes as a result, they don't, we don't live the rest of our lives for human desire, but rather for the will of God. It frees us up to live for God. So God lovingly is going to bring hard things to our lives to say, let's get rid of this. That's why I wanted to tell you a story of my daughter this morning. He goes, I love you so much, we're going to go through a really dark valley so that Right? You can be aware of it. It doesn't mean like, oh, I'm now above it all. And how we talk about it sometimes. No. She knows now it's a gauge. And her, like, and, and I don't know if you've, if you've experienced that. Now I have great sensitivity to what's going on. And as soon as that creeps up in her life, she's like, wait a minute. No. I don't go here anymore. That's, that's not who I am. Sometimes in Scripture... Um, In scripture, God uses the the flesh versus the spirit, the old man versus the new man. Those are all analogy. God goes, I'm making you new. So the simple way to say that is, if you have a boy brain, you've played video games, you know how many times, how many late nights you've spent trying to get over it. The complex way, a little bit deeper, is this. What are the things in your life that God says, I love you, I want to bring this to your attention. And usually it's only through sometimes a crisis or a trial that God will bring that to our attention. What does he need to remove from you? What things have been passed down through your family, generational sin, that he goes, I want to remove this from you? so that you don't pass it down to your children and your grandchildren. I'm going to bring this to the surface. What habits do you have that distract you from God? I want to bring this to the surface and remove this so you and I can be closer. God is love. He always is inviting us into a deeper relationship. And he will... Jesus went to the cross to buy our relationship with him, there's nothing he won't do to continue to come after you and me so that he can have a more intimate relationship. If you give yourself to God, he's going to come after those things because he loves you. And he's like, I'm not going to let that block. I'm not gonna let anything block my relationship from you. What habits do you have that distract you? What pride do you have that blinds you. You know what what idols do you have that comfort you? School, career. Right. Uh, James says the boastful pride of life, the pride of possessions, whatever it is. God says, "I love you, and I don't want anything to stand between you and me." So hard times are an opportunity For spiritual growth. Hard times are usually that pathway towards intimacy with God. And at the same time, almost all of us, I'd say the same thing. I do not desire to go through that again, but what it brought out in my relationship with God, how I saw God work, the trust that was built, the things that I needed just to give up in my life that I didn't even know I was holding on to, almost always happen within trials, within persecution, within the things in our life. James says it this way, and uh, he's even more forward than I'm being. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. Right. This is this is the God we have. His promises. His promise to us is that He's going to continue to work on us to be closer and closer to us. Um, there's a number of pictures in Scripture and narratives. The Old Testament has a number. There's the Exodus narrative. It's played out. Right. There's a cycle of sin that's played out. And I've always talk about this one because I think it's important. I brought it up before. I'm going to bring it up again because repetition is the key to learning. There's a desert narrative. Anytime God works, there's usually, a, there's usually a desert narrative that precedes it. The children of Israel, before they enter the land, they go to the desert, right? John the Baptist is in the desert. Think about Abraham. It's all, the, everybody has to go through the desert, right? Um, Jesus, before he starts his ministry, purposely goes 40 days to the desert and is tempted in every way. Jesus purposely goes through a hard time so that before he starts his ministry. In the desert, what it does is it strips everything away so it's just you and God. And many of those hard times, from trials to persecution, they are a way of going through a desert So if you're facing suffering, God's desire is to walk with you. This is how, this is one of his great desires. Consider it pure joy when you face those things, because this is me working. This is our opportunity. And it's tempting to say, God, how do I get out of this? The Christian goes, okay, God, I know this is going to be hard. Will you be with me in it? God might want to show you a part of him, like he showed Moses, that you didn't know existed. He might want to work something out of our lives or our family's lives so that there's now freedom. Things that, again, were passed down in our family. God goes, I love you, and it's time to deal with this. Because this is standing between you and me. We're only going this far, and my, his desire is to be closer to you and I. And the strange thing about tough times is this. It's one of those things that you sometimes you can't bargain your way out of. If you have resources and capital, you can try to buy your way out of them. But God goes, just walk with me in it. Let me show you. Peter is encouraging the people there. So not only do tough times developed a focused faith as he's encouraging the the people in these churches in this region that are facing them. But they also also develop a genuine faith. Down the chapter, he says this, Dear friends, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice is as much as you participated... um, in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and, and of God rests on you. And if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. I know that person. I've been that person. Right? However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so, as Peter is encouraging them, he goes, Wait a minute, don't be surprised. Are you guys surprised that hard times are coming? Said, don't be surprised by that. As a Christian, re- he goes, They rejected Jesus. And strangely enough, even when you are on your best behavior, they're going to reject you. You know, some of the early church documents, you know, talk about this. There's one that's kind of amazing. It's it's a letter from one Roman government to another one within the first century, within the first AD. And it says, the Christian problem. And he's writing... And he says this. He goes, it's crazy. He goes, Christians, he goes, they, uh, they're accused of A, B, C, D, and E. People come to them, they're accusing them. He goes, but my observation is that they're none of these things. They seem to be pretty law-abiding citizens. They're not revolutionaries. They're not these things. And when I've asked the people accusing them, what's the basis of their accusation? He goes, they don't have any basis of it. And this is, in other words... There are people that hated Christians, and the reason why they hated Christians was because, well, they, they just didn't like them. And sometimes as Christians, we would look at the spiritual war, and we'd say, yes. They, on paper, they've done nothing wrong, but it's like, there is, there is a spiritual onslaught that happens sometimes. And I remember reading that years ago in this book of church history that I had, and thinking, this is, this is amazing. So do not be surprised when people because of your faith reject you. Like and sometimes in very very overt ways. Sometimes it's not them. Now we're talking a lot about hard times. Let me just let me let me break that into three categ- three simple categories as he's saying here, don't be surprised. The first one, as I say this, and again, it's, it's, I, I think it's a lot more co- complex than this, but just to kind of put them into three buckets. The first bucket is, we're talking about persecution. That's being harassed or oppressed because of one's faith in Jesus. When Peter is writing this work, he's writing for this reason. People were being persecuted because they were Christians living in a pagan culture, and they were sometimes not going with the flow. And so, they were losing jobs, and back then it wasn't just a job. They were moving down line within the, the, the family structures that they were in. Right. Then we have another word in Scripture, which is trials. And I want you to think about, you know, that's, that's the sin. That's the sin of the garden. It's evil. It's disease. Think about broken relationships, natural disasters, just accidents. Things happen on this world, and a lot of them are hard. And then you have, you have this other part, which is just moral consequences, like physical, emotional, and moral effects of sinful and selfish actions. And the reason why I bring it up is because, you know, you can put, what are hard times? Oh God, I'm facing these hard times. Well, what'd you do? It's like, well, I've been a jerk to my neighbor, and I can't believe they're being so mean back to me, Right? I'm like, what are we? Are we back in seventh grade? Yes, of course, you know. Um, but sometimes we get into those things, and then we say, God, please get me out of my own, you know, my own work. And God's like, okay, we'll take it from there. But but when Peter's talking, he says, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. There are people in the churches that are suffering. And he's like, I'm suffering because I'm a Christian. I'm like, well, no, you actually stole some stuff from this person. You've been kind of unethical, right? And sometimes in our world, if we're really honest, you go, hey, I'm a Christian. But sometimes it's like Christians have a bad reputation. And you go, well, sometimes it's not because of persecution and not even trials. Sometimes it's because people that are Christians, like we've had, as a pastor, I look at other pastors and I'm like, that guy's, he's stealing money, right? He's overtly lying. It's, right, it's, it's sinful and selfish actions in the name of God. And so sometimes it's like, look, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to be associated like, oh, we're being persecuted. I don't want to go down that road too far. But what I think, the, the great thing is the solution fits every one of these categories, and I think Peter is originally writing for people, they're really being persecuted, but they're also facing, just like you and I, just the, hard, the hardships of life. And he's contrasting it, right? We're gonna suffer, but don't, right? But you're gonna suffer, and hard times are gonna come. Have you met anyone, maybe in your life that was, hey, we went to church with them, I was in a study with them, and they go, Yeah, I don't go to church anymore. They walked away. You say, Well, what, what did you, why don't you go to church? What did you walk away? I, I don't, I'm not a Christian anymore. I go, Why? Well, sometimes it's, I hit hard times. Things got messy. God didn't, I thought Christians, I thought God would make everything right. And I'm like, Wow. This is not a biblical principle. But it's, right? It's easy to think that God, somehow in his relationship with us, is somebody that goes, I make sure your life is good. I take care of all the consequences from persecution, from trials. My job is to mitigate that for you. Have you entered into an agreement with God and you're thinking with him that says, God, you're your job in my life is to make my life better. So when hard times come, it's just, God, how do we get through this as quickly as possible? Or even worse, hard times come, and I'm like, you didn't take them away. You didn't heal my child. You let this infidelity happen. I don't know if I could trust you anymore. Not only do you might have friends who have voiced that to you, Um, if we're honest, many of us have actually thought that. Caitlin shared at Easter about the prodigal son. It's also the story about the older brother. The expectations, God, I will obey you, but you owe me. I'll do a, I'm in a contract. We don't enter into those kind of contracts with God. He's God. He, we, that is thinking about God that's that's um, that leads us down these wrong paths. And um, uh, there's a, a friend that I know who did a large study of of religion, and he said at the end of the day when he interviewed all these families and all these kids and everybody and they kind of, you know, thousands and thousands, huge study, he says, here's the word that I would say most people, most Christian people's relationship with God is. He he says, it's therapeutic deism. In other words, I believe that God is here to take care of me and make my life better. That's that's the contractual relationship I enter into with faith. And the problem is, is that when we hit hard times, it blows this up. And we have to ask a different question about who we are and who God is. This is what John says. Well, this is what it says, in what Jesus says um, in the book of John. John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace In this world, you will have trouble. (laughs) So Jesus' words, in this world, you'll have trouble, but I got your back. No, no, no. In this world, you're going to have trouble. And then he says this beautiful thing, but take heart, I've overcome the world. God's promise is not to take the trouble out of the world. It's that Jesus is there to say, I've overcome the world. I'm with you. And ultimately, like what Pastor Ben talked about this last week and what Scripture says, he goes... You have to stay focused on the future," he goes. Ultimately, he, Jesus says, um, "There is a there's real consequences. Right, our suffering on this earth is for a little while, and it's not to it's 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 not to be a, we're not to be the people that just emotionally check out. But more, we actually go harder into it because we go. God is real. There's a real eternity, and even though this is hard, I go, I am not just going to suffer. I'm going to go in God's direction, and that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't go, well, I'll just go to the cross and get this over with. He's like, no, he, you know, his sweet words to the, to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, it was a reality to him. So if you've made a contract with God, rip it up, <laughs> really. And sometimes we don't know that we made that contract until we hit something hard in our lives. And this is the opportunity for us to come face-to-face and have God speak into our lives in in, in maybe louder or in high definition. What are you going through right now? In this world, you will have trouble. Because ultimately, as we end our time, how we think about hard times is ultimately how we view God. It is really the test, right? We can, you can, we can talk about it, we can think about it, but when we hit, this is where the rubber really meets the road. How we face our hard times is ultimately how we view God. God, you're supposed to take these away. All right, Jesus, you're with me, and I'm gonna give this to you. I'm gonna surrender it to you, and I'm gonna need you to walk beside me because this is gonna be hard. There's nothing wrong with asking God to take things away right? Paul asked three times, take this away. And Jesus said, what? My grace is sufficient for you, for in your weakness, I'm made strong. I want you to continue to walk through that. Jesus, the night before he went to the cross, Father, if there's any way, take this away. And the Father said, I want you to go through this. And Jesus said, and he faced the cross without any hesitation. There's nothing wrong when things come up saying, God, we pray that you would take part of this out. You would mitigate it. That's not trying to escape it. But to understand, God, if we're going through this, will you be with me? This is where we're, we, we really we have that opportunity to see who God is. And so that's why as, this morning as we end our time, we come to communion. Why communion is so important. Why why communion is so significant. We keep our eyes on Jesus. When times are good, when times are hard, he says, Never forget that I have paid the price for you on the cross. I have suffered, and I understand your suffering. I am not a distant God. I know what it's like to go through hard times. I know what it's like to be rejected. I know what it's like. We have a God who you, we have a God who understands us. And then we have a God on the cross. Jesus says, "This is my, this is my body that was broken for you." We have a we have a God who understands that our kind of brokenness, and He says, "Eat and remember." When we do when we have communion. That I took your place on the cross. That His blood was shed, so that you and I could have a relationship with the Father. And that no matter what comes our way, God says, "Keep your eyes on Me." Yesterday, as I was uh, yesterday, I was driving my mom and my aunt and my uncle to my great aunt's hundredth birthday party right? I had the young kids, the 85-year-olds in my car. And as we're going over to Watsonville, where my uh, great-aunt now lives with her son, um, the roads were winding and my mom started to get sick. So I started telling my mom all the things she told me as a kid to keep. I go, Mom, act like you're driving the car. So my mom's in the front seat, 83-year-old mom, (laughs) driving it. And then she said, oh, you're right. She said, what sailors do is they say, when the sea is rocky, you set your eyes on the thing that does not change when everything else is tossing and turning. Is your life tossing and turning? When we come to communion, this is the time we come, and we set our eyes on the thing that doesn't change. gives us peace and balance, and keeps us from getting motion sickness.